Welcome to Case in Point, produced by the University of Pennsylvania Law School in collaboration with Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Today, we'll be talking about the U.S. approach to global trade agreements. Joining us in studio is Tom Weiler, a fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House and currently the Senior Vice President for Global Strategy at PSP Capital. Tom previously served in the Obama administration as Counselor to the Secretary of Commerce. And in Arlington, Virginia, is Jerome Ashton, Managing Editor and International Trade Reporter at Bloomberg Law. Thank you both for joining us. Can you just tell us briefly, what are President Trump's trade priorities? Sure, I'd be happy to. The President has several trade priorities, probably none bigger than redoing the North, North American Free Trade Agreement, redoing agreements with uh, uh, existing trading partners, and fixing, and their um, estimation, fixing the trade relationship with China to reduce the number of goods that are being dumped, allegedly dumped in the U.S. by uh, Chinese companies and manufacturers. And then on top of that, cutting out uh, trade agreements with both the U.K. and Japan. So, Tom, that's a lot. Let's start uh, maybe first with um Trump and his approach to NAFTA, since we know he had a lot of criticism on the campaign trail about NAFTA. Now that he's actually president, what are his actual goals in terms of NAFTA, and what are we seeing play out? Well, you know, I think it's, I think it's been confusing. I think it's been confusing for a lot of people, and I think part of the, why it's confusing is because there are a lot of senior officials that aren't in place yet, frankly. I think the other thing that's confusing is that some of the criticism from the campaign trail uh, was to be fair, I think political rhetoric as opposed to economic or, or trade-based rhetoric. So I think the the priorities, as far as we understand them at this point, uh, for NAFTA, and it's still early days, but the administration has notified Congress of some of their priorities. I think it's fair to say that their priorities are uh, changing the labor and environmental protections in the context of NAFTA and changing the way something called rules of origin uh, is dealt with. And I don't want to jump ahead of you, Felicia, mm -hmm. but I know one of the subjects that we're going to talk about today uh, is TPP, the Trans-Pacific mm -hmm. Partnership. Mm -hmm. And in my view, one of the real tragedies of that is that his priorities, Trump's priorities in the context of renegotiating NAFTA were actually addressed and dealt with in the context mm -hmm. of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which we've now walked away from, which is, which is unfortunate and I think in many ways just doesn't make sense. Sure. And Jerome, maybe for um, some of our watchers who are not as familiar with trade policy, can you just briefly tell us what is the TPP? Um, and why do Trump supporters, as Tom just said, why do they believe that it's um, so politically important to, for the United States to walk away from the TPP? Sure. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was, is, was a 12-nation trade agreement that included the U.S., Canada, Japan, Australia, and other countries. And the goal was free markets, free trade zones, so that goods could move easily between these 12 countries to low ta lower tariffs and also remove trade barriers. Trump supporters, tr the president and his supporters, argued that free trade, such as TPP, meant the loss of jobs in manufacturing, meant the loss of jobs in small mom-and-pop sh shops, and, and in their estimation was a giveaway to large corporations. But has anything actually changed um, from the fact that there's an executive order um, withdrawing the United States from the TPP given that Congress actually hasn't, hadn't approved it? Are there any substantive changes um, in the way American trade policy is now that there's an executive order 
uh, walking away from the TPP? Nothing yet. So this is still to come. And in fact, the other countries are still proceeding with the idea that eventually, and, and in their estimation, hopefully the U.S. will change its position. Those 11 countries are scheduled to meet in Toronto in early May to talk strategy, in essence, how do we convince the U.S. that they made a strategic mistake and to get back into the game. So, but to your point, no, nothing other than the U.S. withdrawing has, has changed the name of the game for TPP. Can of I course. jump in on that for a moment, Felicia? So I, I think that that's exactly right. I think the, the point about the other 11 parties to TPP going ahead is actually a really important thing for us to understand. I think it'll actually be, hopefully, leaves the door open for the United States to, to re-enter TPP at some point. The thing that I think is important to remember and this is what TPP did, and it's, I think was at the heart of the Obama administration's trade policy efforts, is that the, of the countries that are in TPP, 80% of the goods that we import into the United States from TPP countries already come in duty-free. In the United States, we fundamentally have an open economy. Our as-applied tariff rate is 1.5%, which is exceptionally low, which means that most goods coming to the United States are coming in without trade taxes on them, what we call tariffs, right? So they're coming in already. So we have a choice. We either can convince other countries that are, and some of which are a part of TPP, to lower barriers that they have to American products being sold into their market, or the people who make those products can move production overseas to those countries and then sell them into those markets. So Vietnam is one of the, the, the critical elements of TPP, one of the critical countries in TPP. Vietnam is a country basically with rising incomes, roughly 90 million people, approximately 6% growth per year. They want what Americans make and what we sell. So we have a choice of whether or not we're going to convince the Vietnamese to lower barriers to our goods so that we can produce here and sell there, or are we going to produce there and sell there? Those are the choice. We have 95% of consumers live outside the United States. So you know, I, I mentioned earlier uh, you know, that the tragedy of all this is that we walked away from this important agreement. And I understand it. I mean, I understand the politics of it, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's a real loss. And so hopefully, I think as Jerome pointed out, the 11 other countries that are going forward to negotiate will hopefully create space for us to, to get back in the game at some point. Jerome, what is your sense? What are our prospects of those 11 countries actually convincing the United States to rejoin? If, if, you, if I were to say today, I'd say not very good at the moment. But what's interesting is the president and his team have already said, things change. They've already seen how things change over time. So North Korea, the, the negotiations with North Korea or the tensions with North Korea, sort of changing our China policy based on the rhetoric in the campaign. So if you bet today, you would say probably not strong. But over time, I think the key point that could help change some of this is that the business groups in particular worked hard on this for many years, and they laid out this, this strategic plan. If there is a change, and there are supporters on Capitol Hill who agree with the idea of TPP, if, if that can come to be over time, I think you, you'll see, I don't know what time frame, but you'll see many of the components, if not the agreement in, in by name TPP, you'll see many of these components get addressed whenever there's talk of doing a deal with the UK or Japan or even China. So TPP in spirit, whether it comes back as a full agreement or partial in piecemeal, I think will still live on. So uh, that raises a good point. Tom, what do you think, what are our prospects for trade agreements 
um, given this administration's uh, kind of antagonism towards these um, multilateral trade agreements, yeah. what are our unilateral trade options here with our traditional allies? I, look, I think they're challenging. I mean, I think the, you know, if you think about just in the context you asked earlier about NAFTA, uh, you think about, you know, the president is constantly talking about America first. Uh, each of these countries that we negotiate with, whether it's it's bilateral or multilateral, they have their own politics to deal with. And so if we have basically taken an approach as a country where we're saying that we're only going to negotiate trade agreements that put America first, how are these countries that we negotiate with going to go home and sell them at home? They all have their own politics. Mexico, like us, they have a Senate that any trade agreement is going to have to get through. So unless the Mexican leadership can present any new negotiations for NAFTA, any new agreement, is a win-win, is good for Mexico. How is that going to get done in Mexican politics? I think it's hard. And so I think some of the rhetoric that you see coming out of the administration and that you saw during the campaign uh, is, is problematic and is difficult to overcome. Because even if negotiations behind closed doors, so to speak, uh, go well, I think uh, the credibility of the administration with the public in other countries uh, is challenged. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes it hard for, for other countries to come to the table and, and, uh, and negotiate with us right now. Which also raises the question of our own domestic politics. I mean, Trump, the Trump administration or President Trump's approach to trade really seems to fly in the face of traditional Republican orthodoxy that says to prioritize the free market and an open trade system. So why one, why do you think this is? Why do you think that um, Trump's philosophy is so at odds with his own party? And how does that kind of square with the administration's broader uh, deregulatory approach? Well, look, I, I think the, the reason, uh, I think, for, for Trump's rhetoric is similar to the reason for Bernie Sanders' rhetoric and, frankly, Hillary Clinton's uh, rhetoric, is that, you know, basically if you go back over almost three generations um, in our country, there's been a secular trend of loss of manufacturing jobs. Mm -hmm. It used to be really the dominant element of, of our country, of our economy, right? That was sort of a normal job for American, uh, a lot of Americans is to, to work in a, in a plant. Um, now I think it's basically one in 11 jobs uh, is in a manufacturing facility in the United States. That's an incredible decline. But that is not about trade. And it's not about, well, it's not about trade agreements, I should say. I think trade agreements has sort of become a proxy for globalization, which is a force where you've got automation, you've got digitization, um, you have broadband that makes it possible for companies that are buying services to hire people in India to do services overnight and have whatever the service is delivered in the morning. Well, you know, we live in a global economy, and that's not that's not something we can change or put back in the boxes. Technology uh, erupts, so to speak. Trade agreements are what we use to shape globalization. Um, so I think that. What we saw, the reason for this change to Republican orthodoxy, uh, at least in my view, is that our leadership in this country has not done a great job, frankly, of addressing the dislocations that have come over the course of 50 years uh, from, from changing technology. I mean, it's massive disruptions in our economy, and it's happening at warp speed. Um, and I think trade agreements, unfortunately, for, I think, our country uh, have become a proxy for uh, the challenges that are facing the working class in this country. So I think what we saw in this campaign was, you know, on all sides, um, sort of a gravitation towards this rhetoric. And I, you know, maybe, maybe one of the upsides to come out of the campaign uh, is potentially a bipartisan, 
bipartisan agreement. <laughs> I know you, you laugh. You laugh. But but I guess I, I don't mean on a specific policy issue at this point. But I mean on a basic bipartisan understanding that if we want to continue to knit trade agreements together and have open trade policies, we're going to have to do more to to help folks who are dealing with a changing economy. And that gets to skills training, to re-education. You know, I like to talk about something I call permanent education. Um, you know, education in this country. The idea of being trained for a job. Um, when you're 18 or 19 or 20 and never having to go through massive re-education again before you retire at 60 is never going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's true for any profession. You know, we're, we're filming this today at, at Penn Law School. I think that's true for lawyers, too. Um, I have a, I have a, a friend who uh, is, uh, he was an, he's an eye surgeon. He was an eye surgeon. Uh, he's, he's older, let's say mid-60s. And he was telling me about how he graduated from medical school and I guess would have been the late 70s. Um, the tools that you used to perform eye surgery in the late 70s were completely different mm -hmm. than the tools you used to perform eye surgery in you know, 2010. Uh, and so you had to continue to be retrained on new tools, and hopefully you were still proficient at it and good enough to, to do it. But I think that that type of retraining is going to uh, have to come to all professions, or else we're going to continue to have problems making economic policy. Um, Jerome, given what Tom is saying about the political reality um, and maybe even um, optimism for some sort of bipartisan agreement, uh, what is Congress's role and reaction to the Trump administration's trade policy? The reaction so far is supportive of the president, at least from the Republicans, because the I, during the campaign, as Tom said, trade was such a toxic phrase that people are still on board and still applauding the idea that we're putting America first, as Tom says, but we're getting rid of um, unfair trading advantages. But over time, most people suspect that reality will set in and we'll realize, okay, we can't stop trading with Mexico. We can't have a trade war with Canada. How do we improve the conditions for dairy farmers, for exports of beef and autos or whatever, to help to do retraining, to make the, as again, all good points from Tom, to make it sellable here. So Congress's role really seems to be, how do they help the president and the administration put that together and buy public support for that? Because I think the other key piece here is, it's one thing after the election to come back and, and sort of pick up on TPP and the others. But there's a sales job, and I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory terms, there's a sales job that has to be done to say, this is beneficial for the United States, and this is how the rest of the world is operating. Here's how we can evolve, and here's how this will be beneficial to us. So I think Congress's role, if free trade is to continue to flourish, will be a mixture of those elements. Finally, you mentioned this a little bit um, earlier. What is the private sector's role here? Obviously, um, private companies have a huge financial stake in being able to sell their goods overseas, and I imagine would be wary of a protectionist administration. So what, are the, what is the private sector doing here? It's, it's interesting. One, they're doing lobbying of the administration and, and members of Congress, but not at this point pushing hard so that you don't get on the wrong side of the, uh, of the president and all. But we've also noticed private sector groups in the United States and Mexico, private sector groups here and in Canada, have been meeting on their own, just sort of, in essence, how do we um, keep the politicians in check? How do we sort of come to basic agreements and understanding 
so that when NAFTA is reopened, it is not a trade war, it is not a difficult process that, that turns country against country here. So the private sector, I think, is, is sort of doing that. And this is just my theory on this. I think the private sector, uh, Tom's point, is that they're using much of what is done already with TPP and doing a bit of lobbying, saying, really, when you look at this, there's some actually some very good stuff here. You may want to take a second look at that. So it's that combination role that we're hearing that they're performing, as well as lobbying the administration and, and on the Hill. Great. Well, thank you both very much for joining us. And thank you for joining us on Case in Point. Case in Point. Great Minds on Law and Life. Produced by the University of Pennsylvania Law School and Bloomberg Law. Visit us on the web at caseinpoint.org.